You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Karma Byland and Dr. Carla Fisher. Dr. Byland is a professor in the College of Journalism and Communication and the College of Medicine at the University of Florida. She's a communication scientist with international expertise in healthcare communication, family communication, and intervention development. Dr. Carla Fisher is an associate professor in the College of Journalism and Communication and a member of the University of Florida Healthcare Center. She directs the Family Health Lifespan Communication Lab and is leading research to help patients and families engage in healthy communication practice at home and in the clinic. Over the last two years, Dr. Bylan and Dr. Fisher have collaborated with LLS on research to help caregivers of uh, blood cancer patients. So, Karma and Carla, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Today, we're going to talk about adolescents and young adults who are being diagnosed, treated for blood cancers, who are survivors of blood cancers. And certainly, this is a very special time of life for many, many different reasons. You know, it's a time when, and I think probably a lot of us remember it, myself included, but really trying to define who you are and who you're going to be and where life is taking you. And then all of a sudden, you're faced with something certainly no one would ever expect, which is a cancer diagnosis. Adolescents and young adults are not quite in the pediatric group. They're often not quite in the adult group. So it's obviously a very special group. So with that in mind, tell us a little bit more about who is in the AYA group and why do we define it that way? Sure. This is Carla Fisher. Yeah, about two decades ago, the term emerging adult came out, and that's really that period of development between age 18 to 25. And then we often think of young adulthood starting somewhere after that and going up through age 39. And we know that time period and even kind of, you know, breaks into lead adolescence is a really important period and a long period of adult development. And so it's important to kind of think about how that makes it unique both for coping and healthcare practice. And there's really two issues that go hand in hand, and that's developing one's independence or autonomy. And then also, like you mentioned, developing your sense of self, your identity, who you are. So a diagnosis early in the lifespan can derail what is a typical trajectory of adulthood for young adults. You know, those normative transitions that help us become independent, teach us who we are, things like going to college, getting a job, leaving your parents' house. And so cancer can delay or derail those. And so what young adult patients might find is that their pre-diagnosis or pre-treatment lives, both personally and professionally, need to be redefined. So how they become independent adults, develop a sense of who they are, it'll be a little different than what they had in mind or what their parents had in mind and what their peers are going through. So from a care and a coping perspective, it's important to prioritize and preserve those opportunities for them to develop a sense of autonomy and identity because we know it is central to their healthy development as 
adults. So in any cancer diagnosis, we know it creates an identity shift, but then also there's those day-to-day challenges, the rigorous treatment schedules, the battery of appointments, the kind of the lack of control. And that really can further complicate it for a young adult to have time to have those independent tasks, but also to engage in activities that are central to who they are or how they might develop their identity. So we really do want to help them find ways to adapt their sense of self, especially if certain activities like sports aren't something they can do right now, but also making sure schedules can, when possible, be accommodated to prioritize events that are important to them. And then I think related to that is their ability to be able to develop independent skills like decision making. You know, they're still developing cognitively, but at the same time, their voice needs to be a priority in the clinical context. So while they're beginning to learn to make those decisions on their own and and being given the freedom to do so, it's an opportunity for them also to develop a sense of agency in their own lives and their own health care, which we know is really important going down the line when they are more fully independent adults. Let me follow up on that a little bit. And I want to get back to the decision-making piece. But even prior to that, the two of you are communications experts. And I was thinking to myself, you know, meeting a young adult patient, I could ask the question, how are you doing emotionally? How are you doing? I might just get the answer, fine. Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. And as we sort of get into communication, what are better openers? What are better questions? How, as I think about meeting with young adults as a clinician, what are some hints you can give me and providers like myself? There's a number of communication skills that I and others have been involved in working with providers. I think, you know, when we think particularly about the young adults and trying to make them feel comfortable disclosing their concerns and issues. One thing that comes to my mind is a term from the research and teaching literature that we use called the empathic opportunity. So the empathic opportunity is a way to recognize when a patient makes a statement or communicates non-verbally in a way that opens up an opportunity for a provider to show empathy. So these might include an explicit expression of emotion, like saying, I'm scared, But these empathic opportunities might be more implicit also. So somebody might just express a challenge that they have or saying something more indirect, such as I've been crying a lot lately. I think about your example you just gave, Ken, when you said that you asked them and they just say, I'm fine. It might take a little bit more probing to get them to actually give you an empathic opportunity. But by learning to recognize and then acknowledging and responding empathically, Uh, To these, providers can build a relationship of trust with young adults and help them to feel comfortable disclosing more of their concerns. And one of the things that I've worked with healthcare providers on before is how they can try to elicit an empathic opportunity. So in the case of a young adult with cancer, it may be trying to encourage them to express their feelings. So saying something like, I can tell that this has been really difficult for you. Can you tell me what's been going on? might help a young adult to feel comfortable disclosing concerns. However, I think it's also important to remember that all patients, and I think particularly young adults, might not be ready to disclose in the first or even second or third visits, that it it may instead take some time to build up that trusting relationship. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a nice reminder because I, I think in oncology, we value a close connection with our patients. But that's a process. It doesn't happen uh, necessarily either in life or in medicine immediately. 
What are some of the things you've observed about young adults in terms of their information needs and wishes as they're trying to navigate through these very difficult decisions? Well, I think we know from the research literature just that people have very different information needs and different ways of coping with uncertainty. So for some people, when they have uncertainty and the decision-making process, they want a lot of information, whereas other people don't want a lot of information. As we think about the process of decision-making when we have a young adult with cancer, and very likely a family member or more than one family member who's helping them to make those decisions, it's important to remember that this can look a lot of different ways. We think that healthcare providers should absolutely encourage young adults to be involved in decision-making. I mean, they are adults. They should be given that opportunity. And we know that people of all ages vary in terms of how much they want their provider to either make a decision for them and how much they want to be involved or have their family involved in that process. So my recommendation always for healthcare providers is to really just be very explicit about the process. Describe to the young adult and their family what the decisions are to be made and describe to them the different patients go about making decisions, you know, in different ways. I think for that younger group that Carla was talking about, the emerging adults, it can be really helpful also to acknowledge that this can be a tricky stage in life to be making decisions as this emerging adult is likely still relying on their parents for a lot of things. But overall, if we keep in mind the kind of the gold standard in medical decision-making, which is a shared decision-making approach that works for patients of all ages. So a shared decision-making approach where the provider and the patient and family, if desired, both participate by sharing information and deliberating together. So the provider, of course, will share information about the disease and treatments, while the patient and family can share information about their values and preferences. Even if at the end, the patient and family ask the provider to make the treatment decision for them, that process of shared decision-making, that communication process still occurred. What I've wondered about is, and perhaps it's a hypothesis, but when patients are more involved in the treatment decision-making, I actually think that sort of empowers them into that next phase of survivorship too. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I'm trying to think if I've seen studies specifically on, on that hypothesis. I think it makes sense to me just logically that patients who, especially at this younger age, where they're kind of learning what it means to be a patient, they're learning what it means to be involved in their care, that being given opportunities to be involved leads to more patient activation. And it makes sense to me that that would lead to them feeling more confident as they move on into survivorship. I wanted to talk about sexuality, intimacy, fertility. Those are difficult issues in general for people to talk about. What are some ways that we can help patients and their family members talk with each other and also talk with their healthcare providers about these important topics? Yes, talking about these issues within the family relationships is very important, but it's certainly also very challenging. We do know that in the long term, by engaging in these conversations over time, the comfort level increases and it opens up the line of communication in families, making it more normative to talk about these things, but then also validates that it's important to talk about these things. But young adults do find it hard to initiate those conversations. So to facilitate a more comfortable or open dynamic, it can be helpful for parents or other loved ones to initiate the conversation about these issues. 
It signals that it's okay to talk about it, that it's important to talk about it. And that can really be done in a gentle manner in the sense that you're using a calm tone, you know, keeping it brief, paying attention to the young adult's behavioral cues. Are they asking questions? Do they appear comfortable or uncomfortable? But then also realizing it's not a one-shot wonder. It's something you have to return to multiple times. And so doing that can really open up the lines of communication, making it more of a comfortable kind of family dynamic. But I think another thing to consider is that oftentimes young adult patients or even late adolescents and emerging adults may think that various issues like sexual health and fertility are so far off that it's not worth worrying about right now. It's just not necessary. That's an issue they'll deal with later. They have more important things, you know, to focus on. But it is important to frame it as number one, it's good to have options later on. So to have a plan in place, it's important to be dealing with this now. And number two, these are issues that are Part of ensuring that you are healthy in all aspects of life, that sexuality and fertility are health issues too. It's oftentimes something that we don't always consider as part of our holistic way of thinking about our health. Mm-hmm. But I also think at the same time, young adult patients may also not feel comfortable talking with parents and may feel more comfortable talking to providers privately. And we do know that oftentimes young adults come to the clinical environment with a, a third party. And so having the space and the opportunity to have private conversations one-on-one with providers so that questions can be asked, they'll feel comfortable disclosing information about their sexual health concerns, but also sharing that information, whereas uh, they might feel less inclined or willing to do so if a third party is involved. I wanted to add to that. I know that your question was more specifically on uncomfortable issues, but I do think that There are things that we can do and that Carla and I do as through our interventions and education to try to help patients and family members also to learn communication skills to work collaboratively with their healthcare providers. We teach a model called the PACES model that each letter P, A, C, E, and S stands for one communication skill that patients and family members can use. So P is for presenting clear and detailed information. A is for asking questions. C is checking understanding. E is expressing concerns. And S is for stating preferences. And what we find is that for people that we're trying to help, that for them to use these skills effectively, it's really important for patients and their family members to do a little bit of pre-appointment planning. So making a list of the questions they want to ask, thinking about what their concerns and preferences are, because sometimes patients will feel uncomfortable bringing up some of these issues of sexuality, intimacy, fertility, or other issues that they're uncomfortable about. And so they wait and they wait until it's the very end of Mm -hmm. the visit. And then you're ready to go out of the room, right? And then the patient feels like either it's too late or they and they don't do it, or they do raise the issue or ask the question, but there's not enough time to fully address that. So to avoid that, what I recommend is that right at the beginning of the visit, they can bring up what we call an agenda item. So they might say something like, Dr. Miller, I do have some issues I'd like to discuss at some point during our visit. So this alerts you, so it's not a surprise at the end. And I think patients or family members who are listening, it's perfectly appropriate to lead into a discussion about uncomfortable issues by acknowledging that it's uncomfortable. So saying, 
Dr. Miller, I kind of feel uncomfortable bringing this up because I think this acts as a cue for the doctor to pay attention and is really going back to what we were talking about earlier is really an empathic opportunity as well. I want to ask you very directly the topic of sexuality in particular, intimacy, sexuality, often is uncomfortable for caregivers, for families, for, for patients too. What's your advice for healthcare providers like myself in terms of you know, at least opening the dialogue? What's the opening question or the opening uh, comment that, again, may help patients sort of talk about that topic, subsexuality? I think one way to approach it is to use a normalizing approach. So saying something like, in my experience, I know that a lot of people have questions about sexuality and about fertility, and I'd be happy to talk to you about that if you'd like to. Is that something you'd be interested in? So from the very beginning, you're just normalizing it and you're putting it out there so they can then, it makes it a lot easier for them to choose to say yes, that they'd like to discuss it. Right. Actually, and by the way, thank you. I appreciate that. I think, uh, I mean, because one of the expressions that I've always liked is that we're all involved in the practice of medicine. One of my mentors used to say, because we're still, we're all practicing, mm. ultimately try, <laughs> try to be as good as we can. I like that a lot. That's nice. I do too. What advice, what guidance would you give, again, for healthcare providers about counseling young adults in regards to sharing information or not about their diagnosis with friends, family, employers, potential employers? How can we help our patients with that? This is Karma again. I'll answer this and then see if Carla has anything she wants to add. But I think one of the most useful pieces of advice for this comes from a theory from our field in communication called communication privacy management theory. And this theory describes how information that's owned by one person is then disclosed to another person and then is now what they call is co-owned. So putting that in the context of what we're talking about, if I'm a young adult with cancer, I own that information. And then if I disclose it to another person, that person now co-owns it with me. And one of the things the theory talks about is the the privacy rules around disclosure. So it's really important for the young adult who shares that information with somebody else to negotiate the rules around further disclosure. Oftentimes individuals just share information and they just assume the person they're sharing it with will not disclose it to others. But those people often do. And then that leads to something called boundary turbulence in the theory. But I would really recommend a more explicit process. For example, if a young adult decides to share information about their cancer diagnosis with a friend, they can say something to them like, I want to share some information with you because I trust you. It's really important to me that you don't share this with anyone else without asking me first. So they make that really explicit upfront, which I think then can help the young adult to feel more confident in that disclosure. And it also helps the person that they've given that information to as well. I would just add one thing, and and it's in a context that you didn't ask about. So you mentioned friends and employers. I think also this is a great point that Karma's making, just in terms of even within the family. So it makes me think about, like, for instance, in talking to young adult cancer patients, I can recall a a daughter talking to me about uh, the dynamics with her mother, and the daughter was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she found out that her mother was sharing information about her diagnosis, her treatment, how she was doing on social media. And 
her daughter felt that her privacy was violated in a way that ultimately led to her shutting down communication with her mother. So I do think, you know, even in intimate context, that same theoretical perspective is an important one to be thinking about that, that, you know, the sharing of information, even within a family where we do feel like we co-own it, it can lead to that turbulence that Karma mentioned and violations, which, you know, could be problematic for shutting down aspects of support that we need. I want to ask you also about an important subgroup of young adults, LGBTQ, for people that either identify themselves in those groups publicly or don't. Again, in terms of communication strategies, any special strategies that you would recommend in working with LGBTQ young adults? Yeah, thanks for asking this. I think this is such an important topic and one that I think a lot of healthcare providers feel like they could use more education on how to handle these situations. So it's important to know what to ask, and it's also important to have an open and comfortable dialogue with non-judgmental language. So it can be helpful to start off by asking patients and those that accompany them how they would like to be addressed and let them self-identify. You can make sure that your clinic or your office is offering inclusive options on forms and also verbally shown awareness of diversity in patients, caregivers, and families' experiences, which includes letting them define family or family roles. I think it's also important not to ignore people that have accompanied them, so potential partners or caregivers, and not to make assumptions about relationships. Like with all patients, you want to ask them about their goals and who they want to be involved in their care, who their support system is, which is very important with LGBTQ patients who might lack critical support. It's also important to understand that their history of discrimination might influence their current provider-patient communication experiences. And so offering direct support to enhance their comfort level with disclosing their needs can be really useful. That's great. Thank you. And one of the last topics I want to ask you about is compliance, adherence. I think often that becomes an issue. It's not just in young adults. It can be in middle-aged adults or older adults, too. I think often treatment may be a limited term. It may be four months. It may be six months. And uh, other times, it's really medications that people have to take long-term. Again, with sensitivity to this group of patients, what are some of the strategies we might be able, as healthcare providers, can use to make compliance easier to make it uh, more important to our patients? Well, I think this, especially with young adults and emerging adults, this goes back to that sense of agency and ownership in their medical care. And so, you know, what we discussed earlier, they need to be involved in their care, you know, from the forefront and they need to be invested. And so since this is a period in which they're developing those independent skills in terms of decision-making, socializing, their cognitive development, but also their patient-provider communication skills, that's the prime opportunity to facilitate that ownership, that desire to be involved, that desire to adhere to their treatment or ongoing survivorship care, as if they're already invested in that um, early on from the process. And I think that's a challenge in a lot of different clinical contexts where patients um, begin their treatment for a disease as a pediatric patient and then have to transition into adult care. And so there's always kind of this dilemma of, you know, when do we involve them more directly in their care? And if you're doing that from the get-go, 
it's much more likely that they're going to have an investment, more knowledge, and more accountability with themselves in the long term. And I think when they have transitions where they are becoming more fully independent adults from their parents, that's a time in which you'll want to ensure that that's already been established. I also think there's a good amount of research that shows that, you know, when pediatric patients are transitioning to young adulthood and looking for new providers. Sometimes they've relocated states or have a new healthcare plan because they've switched employers. They're really looking for providers to be very open, maintaining a dialogue, letting them know that they're accessible, and then also giving them clear direction about what the next steps are. You know, what do they need to be thinking about in terms of next steps is helpful in transitioning them to be more fully independent in managing their own care. I've learned a lot of interesting and good terms today, boundary turbulence and other things. So it's been a very memorable uh, conversation for me. I want to ask you to go through the paces again, because I think it's just a useful set of guidance. So P is presenting information. So we want to present clear and detailed information. A is for asking questions. C is for checking understanding. E is for expressing concerns. And S is for stating preferences. I'm going to try to remember that and share it with other people as well. And can I add just one thing about that? Because I I think it's important to remember when we're talking about young adults who are often accompanied by a family member who may be likely to be very involved in their care, that their role in the communication with the provider should be a little bit different. I think that goal of accomplishing those skills is important, but the family member needs to give the patient the agency to communicate with the healthcare provider. And there's a lot of ways to be supportive and to still honor the patient's agency. So such as asking permission of the patient before asking a question. So, you know, if I were there with my daughter, I'd say, Lily, is it okay if I ask the doctor these questions that we had talked about? Or checking with the patient if something is correct, if you speak on their behalf. So if I had described to you some of the symptoms my daughter had been having when I got done, I might say, Lily, did I get that right? And then finally, encouraging the young adult to use the communication skills that are in that list of paces. I really think that for, especially for this younger group, this emerging adults group and their parents who are attending medical appointments with them, can really help them to learn how to be good communicators with their healthcare providers and empower them. And like you were saying earlier, can help them to kind of learn to take that patient role on and then to hopefully be more adherent and feel more comfortable as they transition into being a cancer survivor. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting, as you're talking, I'm thinking about sort of post-traumatic growth. Obviously, sometimes people not only bounce back, but actually bounce forward. That's sort of a nice expression I've heard used. Mm -hmm. So perhaps facing these challenges as a young adult really can, in a sense, lead to bigger and better things in some way, or a life that's different and perhaps richer. And more resilient, too. Are there communication strategies or best practices for families that will be helpful for young adults and, and their families to navigate these challenges together? Yeah, I'll just say one easy kind of thing to think about is what's core to their health during this developmental period, and it always comes back to independence on some level. 
And so it, it is important that parents let young adults set the tone, so to speak, in terms of their involvement in their care and support. Young adults know that parents want to be there and can be an incredible source of support, but preserving the young adult's independence is also important. So for instance, I'll, I'll give an example of a daughter I talked to in her late 20s who was diagnosed with cancer, and she kind of talked to me how it was really important that her mom let her tell her when she needed her, rather than mom saying, hey, I'm going to come down there, I'm going to take care of you. So she let the daughter set the tone, and the daughter really appreciated that. But then at the same time, when her mom did come to help her, her daughter was able to see how important it was for mom to be there too, that it was really central to mom's ability to cope. So while it's not easy for parents to you know, let young adult children, especially those who have a romantic partner or another care partner set the tone, it is an important part of that young adult patient feeling a sense of control and developing a sense of independence. And then I think the other two things to kind of think about is something that is important for all families coping with cancer or all traumatic changes, and that's communicating openly and also in an emotionally supportive manner. You know, families vary in their comfort level uh, in terms of being open and supportive, but even those who do so more so than other families can still enhance those skills. So doing things like initiating those challenging conversations like about sexual health or fertility can create a more open dynamic. But then also knowing that during those conversations, that's an opportunity to provide each other emotional support. We do know that there's some supportive strategies that are perceived as helpful to young adults, things like listening, showing affection, using humor, but also allowing one to share distressing emotions, things like sadness, anger, fear. And that is not easy. That's not always easy for us to hear. And it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction that we immediately want to tell them to stay positive. But that also can result in young adults feeling silenced. So disclosing distressful emotions, it can be therapeutic, it's health-promoting, and it's important that their feelings are validated and heard. So, you know, one thing that we can do is allow them to vent, tell them that their feelings are valid, and then maybe at times do what I call healthy doses of positivity, you know, help them reframe things, but also let them release those distressing feelings. Firstly, I want to thank everyone for listening. This is Dr. Ken Miller. I am a volunteer for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and a medical oncologist. It's been a wonderful session today with Dr. Karma Byland and Dr. Carla Fisher from the University of Florida. Karma, Carla, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Again, I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this really informative and interesting podcast. For more information on blood cancers and resources to support young adults and their families, please visit www.lls.org. And for a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts and continuing education activities, including webinars on survivorship care for childhood and young adult cancer and facilitating the learning experience during and after cancer treatment, please visit www.lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient or a family to LLS for support, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one -on -one support, resources, and education for patients and families about their disease and treatment and to offer support for financial and psychosocial challenges. Finally, to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes, 
please subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at www.lls.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time. <laughs>